0: Welcome to the Giving Voice to Depression podcast, We're your co-hosts, Bridget and Terry. Each week, we
1: explore a different perspective on or experience of depression because it varies in form and severity affecting us differently. Our guests share intimate details of their struggles, coping strategies, and recovery. We keep it real because the struggle is real. We keep it hopeful because there is hope in spite of what depression tells you.
0: We're not experts or therapists. We're sisters and best friends who live with depression and know that talking about the illness reduces stigma and humanizes the experience, making it safer and easier to ask for needed support. You are far from alone.
1: Today's podcast is sponsored with a Garrett Kelly Memorial Grant from the Charles E. Kubley Foundation. In loving memory of Garrett and others who've struggled with depression, we are solely responsible for podcast content.
0: Hello, Terry. Hello, Bridget. Since last week's episode on depression in the medical field, the World Health Organization announced that it is updating its definition of burnout. It stops short of classifying it as a medical condition, though that was widely reported. However, it is bringing much-needed attention to the problem of work-related stress.
1: Mm -hmm. So the new World Health Organization definition requires that to diagnose burnout, mental health professionals have to rule out anxiety, mood, and other stress-related disorders. The organization also announced it plans to develop evidence-based guidelines on mental well-being in the
0: workplace. And now we're going to continue our discussion with trauma surgeon Dr. Michael Weinstein. In part one of his interview, we focused on the systematic changes that he thinks are necessary to reduce and address depression among doctors and other healthcare professionals.
1: While the many stresses of Dr. Weinstein's medical training and responsibilities may have increased his risk of depression, his family history may have too. Today, we hear about Michael's personal experience with depression and the challenges and lessons of switching roles from being the doctor to the patient in the medical system
2: my grandfather who um for the last 20 some years of his life he was depressed in and out of facilities hmm. very aggressive treatments and um i think i saw that and saw that I, that's that that's my destiny and i'm i'm not i'm not hitting it at 65 or 70 i'm hitting it at well, i guess i was 48 and uh that's the only future I could see, and um, that's the scariest, scariest thing in the world because that pain, when it's deep, really bad depression, it's, it's, um, it was just severe, like every, just every minute of the day was um, occupied with thoughts and feelings that I didn't know how to make, make go away, certainly, and barely, didn't really even know how to lessen them. Um, and, uh, you feel so trapped.
1: Were they all related to being worthless, being a burden, everyone would be better off without you kind of thoughts?
2: Yes, absolutely. You know, it starts, it's, it starts more mild, um, it started more mild, I should say for me, at least, um, with thoughts of failure and, um, then finding, you know, evidence of failure in everything you're doing and Mm -hmm. then... And feeling, you know, de- depressed about feeling like a failure and it, it, it just keeps adding and adding multiple layers until, yeah, yeah I, I felt, I mean, it, it's hard for me to even say these days, but I, I, I truly felt that I was a burden on my family and my wife and kids and that, you know, it, they were the only things that were ever in my life holding me back from considering suicide. Um, but you can get I got to a point where I really thought my mind could convince me that, uh, that they were, they'd be better off if I weren't there. Um, and certainly the world and everyone else would be, it would be a better place without me. Um, and yeah, you hear, I mean, I had never really heard those types of thoughts from anyone else or heard people speak that way.
1: But what a dastardly illness. I mean, to convince you, a, you're not sick. You're just worthless, and then right. to tell you that the people for whom you would live, mm-hmm. I don't even know what words to use. I mean, how how as a community, as a as a medical community, as a just a general public, do we? Do we communicate this to both sides, to the people who might lose someone with depression and to somebody with it? How do, how do we, how do we say it's that bad and get involved or what's the message doctor? Help me, help me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think the work you're doing, for instance, is, is, is key in getting this message out and hearing as many stories, especially when people, you know, I I think when people are in the throes of it, it can be really hard to hear. But if people can hear these messages before that Mm -hmm. um, and as they're beginning to recover, because everyone can recover. I, I really believe that so deeply in my heart. I remember the first day that it really was starting to lift. And I called my wife and just said, you know, this is the first time I'm just so happy to be alive and so happy that I didn't take That you guys kept me from taking action um Mm. otherwise and um um there's so many reasons and so many ways to to find little bits of joy and meaning that it's um i I don't know how to get that message out other than keep talking about it and having these conversations and destigmatizing these conversations so that people can listen and hear and um Hear it on national platforms, international platforms.
1: You described yourself as having treatment-resistant depression, and when I read that, I thought, oh, there will be people listening who are so glad to hear a doctor use that phrase because they've been told by doctors, you know, basically nothing works for you like as if they're just difficult as opposed to the things that they've been prescribed have been ineffective for them. So treatment-resistant depression, it's real and you have it?
2: Oh, God. Um, Fortunately, right now, I don't, um, which is interesting um, because in the throes of it. um, So this is now going about two years ago, certainly the worst episode of depression I've ever had. Um, Nothing, nothing was working, nothing at all. Um, Talking to all sorts of people, different types of therapy constant attempts at medication changes. Um, and uh, so that is treatment-resistant depression, um, where there's nothing nothing you're throwing at it is working, and it's so scary. Um, I, I mean, I called it end-stage depression, I, you know, I, which I'm not sure truly, I, uh, I, I don't think truly exists um, in my heart. Um, but I thought damn well I had it and, um, I I thought there was never, I was never going to get better.
1: So we want to stop for a minute to say we're about to get into some of Michael's really rocky waters and talk about that place of lost hope. But please realize he is speaking about his past. Michael's in a different place now and that is exactly why he's sharing his story. He wants to remind you, all of us, that things can and do change for the better. Please hold on. You are not alone.
2: I, I checked. Yeah, checked myself in with my wife um, to a to an institution for psychiatric care, and uh, it, was, it was there voluntarily. I didn't. You know, I didn't necessarily want to be there. It Was scary as hell just to admit that I was going to a psychiatric hospital. Um, I really thought. I certainly thought that would end my career.
1: Since Michael had tried so many treatments that didn't work for him, as both a doctor and a grandson, he knew what was next.
2: You know, the way the medical community sees the treatment of depression, it's medicines, you know, some psychotherapy, and then there are the big ones. <laughs> and they quickly recommended, uh, you know, aggressive treatment with, with uh, electric convulsive therapy.
1: He started that therapy and fell even deeper into depression's dark pit.
2: And then I sunk into bed and, and wouldn't wouldn't get out, wouldn't eat. And, um, you know, I, I understand from, from, from their standpoint, they were in charge of keeping me safe. Um, and said, you know, kind of threatened me if I didn't start, get, you know, getting with the program, this is what's going to happen. We're going to put you in the locked ward. And I freaked out.
1: Suffice it to say, Michael resisted he was restrained and forcibly taken to an isolation room.
2: It's a really hard hard thing to go through. I get it. It's about safety. I think there are better ways to interact with patients when it comes down to those critical times that sometimes aren't always uh, used in terms of de-escalation and ways of putting people... um, on your side, rather than become you know, forcing them to become defensive. But at the same time, as hard as that whole thing was, it was humbling to be um, amongst a, a different population of folks. Uh, it was also, in some ways, interesting. Um, I, I learned um, about, you know, kind of being on their side and being uh, on the other side of this whole type of situation of care
1: how'd you get from there to here?
2: Hmm. What a crazy journey. Huh? Um yeah. so being in the psychiatric hospital with other people who were I mean I was like I was amazed uh, you have those types of thoughts too. <laughs> um yeah. and so you know I realized that if people could realize that they're not alone and that it's okay and if it, if anything even it's a strength and it it's um it's a courage to, 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 to openly talk about these issues and you don't need to be ashamed to do so. Um I, I wanted to show people that because I don't I really I my my main motive I don't want anyone to ever have to go through that what I went through. If I can if I can possibly help you avoid this, I would really like to. It's amazing that you know we can talk about the issues and we can talk about statistics. The story and the narrative is so powerful. I'm just amazed that people can always identify parts of themselves in someone else's story.
1: Yeah, you can say 350 million people and you can say one in four. Right. That's like talking about the national debt to me. Right. None of it means anything. I think that's a lot of people. But right. when you say to me... And I was restrained. I feel that in my gut, Right. you know, right. and I'm not going to forget that. What is the expression of what is personal is universal. It's also a way that we get to control the narrative. Right. I think that that's very empowering in a way.
2: Yes, yes.
1: In the article Michael wrote about his experience for the New England Journal of Medicine, he said, my healing has been considerable. I am happier and more optimistic than I have ever been in the past
2: 50 years i've i've recovered in in ways that i really thought were on i I still find them so surprising um for a while i wanted to tell the story that i recovered and everything is great and hunky-dory and like you know it's like the you know the the journey of the hero or something and um but that's not life and uh and life has its ups and downs and it's learning to work with that and 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 encounter those and realize that um It's all just as it should be, and it will unfold, and it will. And we, you can work through anything that arises. Um, Every human has that possibility.
0: So true, yet so difficult to use um, as a raft to buoy you up when you're in the deep, dark waters. Mm -hmm. But that's why we're talking about it, and that's why we need to
1: hear each other's stories, so that when we're in it, we can hear from other people who were and trust them when they say there's, there are ways out.
0: Absolutely, there are ways out. We're going to link to um, Michael's article, as well as a beautiful YouTube video about his journey. Mm -hmm.
1: He also I didn't use it in this piece. But during the interview, he mentioned a book that had been really helpful to him. It was about mindfulness. And he said it helped him with his recovery. Um, I have not yet read it. Uh, I ordered it and got the workbook instead of the book by mistake. But we will post a link to it on his recommendation.
0: And next week's episode will be on the Lifeline text line, and that one seven four one. Yeah, there are a lot
1: of people who prefer to text versus call, whether that's an energy thing or privacy thing or any number of reasons. And we'll look into what all of those are and uh, just what an amazing job they're doing. And I just want to end this using the same words that uh, Dr. Weinstein used to end the story, which was, You can work through anything that arises. Every human has that possibility. So please keep hope. Mm -hmm. Bye, Terry. Bye, Bridget. And thank you, Dr. Weinstein.